one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of Not Necessarily England, episode 56, The History of Medieval Europe, part 2. So today we're going to bring the story of the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy to the end of the 12th century, and then have a look at some other bits of the world we've been missing, Scandinavia, Spain. Then I'm going to end up with Byzantium and the horrors of the Fourth Crusade. And Mark, my apologies, this episode is rather likely to be something of a fact explosion. So, let's go. We ended last time talking about the First Reich, or the Holy Roman Empire, with the election to the papacy of one Hildebrand, elected as Gregory VII in 1073. So, about a hundred years after the death of Otto the Great. If you're interested, the Second Reich was the unified Germany established by Bismarck from 1871, and we all know about the Third Reich. Anyway, Gregory is the man who starts what is known as the Investiture Crisis, which has a fundamental impact on the history of Germany and the medieval world. The word investiture refers to the process of investing new bishops and abbots, or even priests, with the symbols of their office. And lay investiture was where it was a secular lord or a king who gave those symbols, i.e. basically choosing who would have the office and therefore exercising control over what the church did. Around 1100, Henry I of England had relatively easily agreed a deal whereby the Pope gave the symbols of the spiritual authority, and then the churchman gave homage to the temporal lord only for his lands. This was an agreement that the papacy and the Holy Roman Emperor were to find much more difficult to arrive at. The story didn't start with Gregory VII, but he was the man who began to make church reform a reality. He was determined to get rid of the corruptions that had plagued the church for centuries, to stop priests having sex, to stop people from buying church offices, and to stop the involvement of lay authorities in the running of the church. To our modern ears, all of this sounds, of course, entirely sensible. Church and state should be entirely separate. To the medieval ear, it was a good deal less straightforward, and in the dispute that follows... It's really important not to view this as a struggle between an anti-clerical, anti-religious emperor and the supporters of truth, life and justice in Gregory VII. The emperor and his supporters were themselves genuine and committed supporters of the church. They just saw things rather differently from Gregory. One of the reasons why the investiture crisis was so bitter was because the issues it raised were genuinely difficult and divided people's loyalties. The Holy Roman Emperor at the time of Gregory's accession was Henry IV. He was perfectly happy to help with the sex thing, but couldn't agree with the removal of lay investiture, which would have an impact on the entire Ottonian system of rule. So, he assembled the German bishops of Worms, and together they refused to obey the Pope. Gregory responded with his own weapons, excommunication, and he deposed the Emperor. So, that makes it clear then, does the Pope appoint the Emperor 
or is it the other way around? And so battle was joined. Unfortunately for Henry, the German nobility chose this moment for rebellion against the power of the emperor. Their objectives were not particularly to support church reform, but an alliance with Gregory was a powerful aid to them. So they joined forces with Gregory and told Henry that he must back down from his fight with the Pope or they'd depose him as emperor. Henry's next step needs to be in a film somewhere, and maybe it is. It was imperative that he should separate the papacy from the rebels. And sadly for him, Gregory was coming north from Italy to meet the rebels and the bishops in Germany. If they got together, Henry would be toast. And Henry realised that the only way for him was to get Gregory back on his side somehow, so he needed to meet him before he got to meet the rebels. Both the rebels and Gregory were well aware of this, and they knew that they had to deprive Henry of the opportunity before he was deposed. So Gregory hurried, and the rebels guarded the passes through the Alps. So what Henry did was to ride round the lands of the rebels in South Germany and ride like a maniac through Burgundy, and so across the Alps. Quite by luck, Gregory had been delayed. And quite by luck, Henry managed to reach the Pope before he crossed the Alps at a place called Canossa in northern Italy. Gregory cursed his bad luck, and his own letter describes the ensuing scene, and his own letter describes the ensuing screen, and his own letter describes the following scene. There, on three successive days, standing before the castle gate, laying aside all royal insignia, barefooted and in coarse attire, Henry ceased not with many tears to beseech the apostolic help and comfort until all who had heard the story were so moved by pity and compassion that they pleaded his cause with tears and prayers. Gregory was in a jam. If he forgave Henry and rescinded his excommunication, he would betray the rebels and his allies. If he didn't, he would be acting against all the principles of mercy and forgiveness for all the world to see in the face of a penitent. Gregory was painfully aware that he was being manipulated by Henry but really there was just nothing he could do. He had to accept Henry's submission and reinstate him as king. From this position of power, though, this could have been the chance for Gregory to come to an accord, some compromise with Henry that would work. But unfortunately, Gregory was not a man for half measures. He was an all-or-nothing kind of guy. So, he missed the opportunity to arrive at an agreement that both sides could live with, unlike so many later popes who understood the need to stand on principle, but sometimes to compromise on what actually went on. But, by accepting Henry's submission, Gregory left the rebels high and dry. As far as they were concerned, this was betrayal. The rebels gave up on the Pope in disgust, and kept going, but their cause was without doubt weakened. And when the leader of the German rebels died, Henry was able to reassert his control which then left him free to come down to Rome with an army, depose Gregory and appoint a rival pope, or an anti-pope. Gregory looked around for someone to defend him and hit upon the Normans in Sicily. The who? And how? Ah, well, I should have mentioned FYI by this stage. In fact, by 1091, the Normans had invaded and conquered Sicily and southern Italy from the Saracens, OK? So, Robert Giscar duly burnt Rome and took the pope off to safety where a year later he died. He died thinking that he'd lost. And his last words were, I have loved justice and hated iniquity, and therefore I die in exile. So, at least we know what Gregory's view on Gregory was. But in fact, he hadn't really lost. 
the Holy Roman Emperor was never able to get the world to accept his anti-pope and a real pope was elected. In the end, Henry's successors were forced to come to terms with Gregory's successors. And the Concordat of Worms in 1122 took the opportunity to regulate the deposition of towels on sun loungers and while they were at it, came to pretty much the same deal as Henry I of England had already arrived at. The Pope invested the spiritual symbols and the Emperor took homage for their lands. Only the most diehard now thought that Popes were appointed by the Emperor. So, the Emperor's ability to implement the Ottonian system of rule by the Emperor through the Church was seriously damaged. This was, in fact, just the end of Round 1. And Round 2 is where we finally begin to get up to date. The basic story here is the increasing failure of the Holy Roman Emperors to control the papacy and Italy, and at the same time, their failure to maintain their temporal power in the heartlands of Germany. It's hidden for a while by the size of the main personality involved, a guy called Frederick Barbarossa. But the underlying theme is one of centralised power slipping steadily away. So, the 12th century in Germany was dominated by a struggle for power between the Hohenstaufen descendants of Otto the Great, who roughly you might equate to the cause of a centralised state under a strong monarchy, and the Welfs, a rival dynasty within Germany. This means that when a man called Frederick Barbarossa came to the throne, Germany is riven by civil war between the Welfs and the supporters of the Emperor, who are known for your interest's sake as the Ghibellines. I'm feeling a bit mean about what follows about Barbarossa, since for the sake of brevity, he's not going to sound great. So, I should point out before I start that he is one of Germany's most famous emperors for good reason. His name, incidentally, means red beard, and he dominated 12th century Germany and Italy, ruling between 1152 and 1190. He's beset on all sides by both secular rebels and religious controversy, and by the inherent weakness of royal authority. But despite that, he basically manages to dominate because of his charisma, his longevity and his energy. So, just like Arthur, Barbarossa is not actually dead. But sleeping with his knights under a mountain, waiting for the ravens to stop flying around his mountain, at which point he will ride forth again to restore Germany to its greatness. And this should give you an idea of the impact of the man. But despite all of this, his exalted view of imperial authority basically failed. His search for supremacy against the Pope and the cities of northern Italy was defeated on the battlefield of Legnano in 1176. He was unable to keep control of the cities of northern Italy since he basically failed to understand their ambitions for independence, driven by flourishing economic growth. So in the end, his attempts to repress them and enforce strict notions of imperial authority in the end drove them further away and brought matters to a head. Effective control by the Holy Roman Emperors over northern Italy was now a thing of the past, and the way was open for the rise of the independent Italian city-states. Barbarossa has his own collection of antipopes, just as Henry IV did, but the outcome was, in the end, that in 1177, he submitted to Pope Alexander III in person in Venice, outside St Mark's Cathedral. So picture the scene. Frederick, the great Holy Roman Emperor, approached Alexander, threw off his imperial garments and prostrated himself at his feet. History records that Alexander has tears in his eyes, which I think we're meant to think are tears of joy at the reconciliation, and maybe they are. 
but it is just possible that Alexander may have been thinking about Gregory VII and his death in exile in Sicily. And that it could be that these are also tears of triumph, as temporal authority lies down in front of spiritual. Beaten in Italy, Frederick returned to Germany and gave his wealth rivals a good kicking. The wealth leader, Henry the Lion, was deprived of his fiefs and driven into exile. But the price was the long-term fragmentation of Germany because he achieved his success through a deal with the local territorial lords that recognised them as a closed society of princes with complete power over their region. The wealth inheritance was split up between them and although hidden by the force of Barbarossa's personality, the end point was that by the 17th century there was an empire split into over 300 political bodies and it would take the Iron Chancellor in 1871 to put them all back together again. So, integral to Frederick's defeat in Italy had been the Norman state of Sicily. By the time of the 1130s to 50s under Roger the Great, the Normans were kings of all Sicily and southern Italy, and one of the most powerful monarchs in Europe. Sicily lay at the crossroads of the Mediterranean. It was just a melting pot of Greek, Arab and Frank. Their navy controlled the central Mediterranean. They were the inveterate enemies of the empire, but well able to bring the Pope to his knees when the situation demanded it. So Frederick's son, who was Henry VI, the king kidnapper, turned his attention back to Italy. He was married to Constance, the heir to the Sicilian throne, and by 1194 he had managed to defeat Richard the Lionheart's friend Tancred in Sicily and take control but his death in 1197 underlined the weakness of the German state. The German princes, eager to demonstrate their power, had refused Henry VI's request to make the emperor an hereditary position. So, when he died, he left a son of only two years old, and the princes chose to elect a wealth called Otto IV as Holy Roman Emperor, and the civil war was back on. Otto IV, by the way, was the emperor who failed John by losing at the Battle of Bouvines. Anyway, Henry's young son was another Frederick who would be a truly exceptional emperor and be described as the astonishment of the world, stupor mundi. But that's a story for another day. So, I think that's enough about the Holy Roman Empire. To summarise, a long struggle between emperor and pope, between emperor and German nobility, that in the end leads to a Germany with a relatively weak central authority. A set of city-states in northern Italy with high degrees of political and economic freedom and a papacy with greater freedom of action and authority than it had had for many centuries. So, we've covered vast parts of Europe, but there is a bit more. Some of you asked questions about some more specific areas, i.e. Scandinavian world, Spain and Portugal, so I thought I'd start with Spain. The Visigothic Kingdom of Spain had been overrun by the Arabic world at the start of the 8th century, But then in 722, the Spanish king Pelagius won a victory at Cordovango, and this, along with the help of Charlemagne, meant that three Tichy mountain Christian states survived in the north. There is, of course, a map on the website. So, in the northwestern corner of Spain, we have Leon, and then in the middle, in the north, adjoining southern France, we have the Basque Kingdom of Navarre, and then in the northeast, we've got Aragorn. So, for the sake of brevity, let me just say that for 200 years, things for the Christian states are a bit dicey. That covers about 200 years of history and personal struggle. 
Their survival was made possible by the fact that the Moors split up into a number of different states and they argued amongst themselves, though it's got to be said that the Christian states argued just as much. The period was punctuated by triumphs on either side, but even by the year 1000, the Islamic ruler could refer to Leon as 30 barbarians perched on a rock who must inevitably die. But then, essentially, from the 11th century, there was a gradual process of reconquest by the Christian kingdoms, until in 1492, the last Muslim ruler of Granada in the south of Spain hands over his kingdom to Ferdinand and Isabella of Castile. But we've got a long way to go before that happens. There is ebb and flow, there is flow and there is ebb. There are local alliances where Christian and Muslim leaders make common cause, as well as Christians fighting Muslim. But through the 11th century, the Kingdom of Castile emerges as the leader of the Reconquest, with the Muslims divided into a series of smaller states called the Taifa states. And then, in 1085, comes the great step forward. Because in that year comes the capture of the great city of Toledo by Alfonso VI. Alfonso then rather unwisely squeezes the other Muslim states for more tribute. Unwisely, because this generates a reaction. A new dynasty and caliphate, the Almoravids, invaded in the form of a leader called Al-Mansur. Al-Mansur won a great victory against Alfonso, and we get something of a turnaround, but significantly he didn't retake the city of Toledo. This incidentally is the period of the great Spanish national hero, Rodrigo Díaz de Vivar, also known as El Cid. El Cid, in fact, fought at times for both Muslim and Christian leaders, but famously and temporarily carved out a kingdom for himself from the Moors at Valencia. Besieged by a great invading Muslim army, he finally died defending the walls, shot through the heart by an arrow. At which point, his wife strapped him to his horse so that the defenders would fight on, buoyed by the presence of the great Cid. A great story and a perfect role for Charlton Heston and, of course, Sophia Loren. Then in the 12th century, a new Islamic leader arose from the Atlas Mountains, and by 1172, the Almohads had established complete control over the old Almoravid Spain. But during that takeover, the Christian states had taken the opportunity while they were distracted to once again take some more territory from the Moors and expand and grow. And it's in this period that Portugal first appears, with the declaration in 1143 of her first king, Alfonso, still at that time a vassal of Leon. From the beginning, the Christian reconquest of Spain was a partnership between the church and the kings. Part of this was the imposition of the Roman rite throughout the reconquered territory, which often had as much to do with re-educating the Christian population as it did converting Muslims or Jews to Christianity. The Reconquest had the same status as a crusade, with religious military orders such as the Order of Caltrava and the Order of Santiago. Many of the monasteries were half religious house, half fortress, and were an integral part of the Reconquest. So it was in these years that the basis for the future partnership between Spain and the Roman Church was laid. By 1200, Christian Spain has suffered what would turn out to be their last significant defeat at the hand of the Moors at Alarcos in 1195. But significantly, the Almohads were again unable to follow up their victory. Then, 
1211 they tried again and Pope Innocent declared a crusade. Many of these crusaders, as is traditional, caused as many problems as they solved, horrified at the merciful treatment in Spain of Muslim and Jewish local inhabitants. But nonetheless, in 1212, Alfonso VIII won the decisive battle of Las Navas de Tolosa. And by 1252, the last Muslim kingdom, Granada, was a vassal of Castile, and the last battle between Moor and Christian had been fought at Salado. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So, let's go back up north then into the Scandinavian world or at least Denmark and Norway. Norway came relatively late to Christianity, but through the 11th and 12th century there was a structured church operating there. And after the death of Harald Hadrada, Norway was clearly established as a separate kingdom. It's not quite yet free of interference from Denmark, but its church has won independence from the Danish church. The roving spirit was still a bit in evidence. It was around 1100 that the Isle of Man and the Hebrides were made subject to the Norwegian king, though the level of control they exercised could be described as a bit variable. Why the Viking Age ends is something moot. But Christianity seems to get most of the credit. Christians were not supposed to hold fellow Christians as slaves, for example, and that had been one of the main profit motives for raiding. Also, royal authority was now much stronger. Though having said that, from the mid-1100s to about 1240, Norway goes through an extended period of civil war. During the period, one king in particular stands out. Svara Sigurdsson fought a series of wars to keep his claim alive and won the Bagler Wars against the church-led Bagler faction. I hope I pronounced that right. Despite being constantly challenged by alternative claimants to the throne, he managed to achieve the distinction in 1202 of being the first king of Norway to die of natural causes. I imagine that's one record he was very glad to achieve. Now last, in 1240, Harkon Harkinson defeated the last royal pretender and the civil wars were at an end, and Norway entered into what historians described as a golden age. We left Denmark in 1085, when Canute IV had threatened an invasion of William the Conqueror's England, and William had made the Saxons cut their hair off to look like Normans to terrify the invaders, or maybe convince them they were lost. But Denmark then went into a period of internal chaos, so much so that in 1146 there were three pretenders to the throne, each of them slugging it out for overall control. Eventually, exhausted and overcome with reasonableness, the three of them decided to just split the place up between them and each be content with their lot. The result of this sensible and reasonable approach was, of course, violence, death, despair and butchery. One of the three, Svein, invited his co-rulers along to a big party to celebrate their pact and then proceeded to try and kill them. Sadly, Svein boobed. Two of them escaped and one of them was Valdemar, soon to be called Valdemar the Great rather than Valdemar the Dead. And by the end of 1157, Valdemar was king of a united Denmark and Svein had been butchered by a group of presents. 
Valdemar restored Denmark to glory in the traditional medieval manner, a close partnership with the church, beating up pagans and making war. By the time of his death, the foundations of the future Danish capital, Copenhagen, had also been laid. Denmark was a powerful operator in the Baltic Sea, and Denmark had its own mini-empire on the Baltic coast, east of Denmark. One of Valdemar's children was the rather unlucky Inga Borg, the one who was rejected on her wedding night by Philip of France. But another was Valdemar II, later to be called Valdemar the Victorious. Now, as you might guess from the name, the second Valdemar wasn't the stay-at-home type. He extended Denmark's lands to the east to include the Estonians, whom he forcibly converted, and for a while he held lands in northern Germany. By the time of his death in 1241, he'd lost some of what he'd gained, but in the process had established the Danabrog, Denmark's flag of a white cross on a red background, as the national flag. The story goes that at the Battle of Lindenissa, where the Danes were fighting the Estonian pagans, the fortunes of the battle became tied up with the arms of a Danish bishop called Sunason. Whenever he raised his arms, the Danes started winning. But whenever the poor chap got tired and had to drop his arms, they started running away. As you can imagine, all this was very stressful for the poor old bishop, and eventually the heavens took pity on him, and a piece of red cloth with a white cross drifted down from the sky, and a voice proclaimed, When this banner is raised on high, you will be victorious. The battle was won, the piece of cloth duly became the national flag. You'll be relieved to hear that we're coming to the end of this slightly breathless survey of all matters European, though without ever covering Eastern Europe, and I'm sorry about that, Ben. I think the right place to end is with the great survival of the ancient world and the bulwark of Christendom, Byzantium, and one of the most extraordinary events in an extraordinary era, the Fourth Crusade. We last met Byzantium at the time of the Third Crusade. The last of the great Byzantine emperors, Manuel, had suffered a critical and disastrous defeat by the Turks in 1176 at Myrocephalus. The defeat meant that their control over the Anatolian heartland was very variable and their military powers were quite seriously curtailed. But despite this, Constantinople remained the wonder of Europe. With 400,000 people, it was by far Europe's largest city, the most magnificent and the richest. His emperors, though, were a bit of a dead loss after the end of the Komnenos dynasty. Court politics were truly, well, Byzantine. Nonetheless, it still seemed impregnable. Set behind the walls of Theodosius, and the disunity of the Muslim world continued to protect it. And in fact, the blow that would finally tear the life out of the real Roman Empire was to come from their supposed Christian friends in the West. The blow didn't come without a bit of warning. Relationships between Eastern and Western Christendom had been increasingly frosty. It's important to note that this is a relationship built on mutual dislike, distrust and misunderstanding. Although it turns out to be the West that pillages and destroys Constantinople, I could just as easily imagine Constantinople doing the same. Anyway, in 1054 comes the schism between the Latin Church and the Orthodox Church over a number of doctrinal matters that are really too picky to mention. The first three Crusades should have spread a sense of peace and harmony and love amongst Christendom in the glow of the shared cause of the defence of Christianity. But in fact, they do rather the opposite. The two sides simply couldn't understand each other. To the Westerners, the Greeks were effeminate, untrustworthy weirdos, far too subtle for their own good. 
To the Greeks, the Latins were a bunch of smelly, hairy, untrustworthy barbarians. You'll note then that there was one attribute that they both had in common. Added to that is economic rivalry. Now there were Western countries vying for the trade in the East and naval supremacy in the Eastern Mediterranean. The island of Sicily, for example, and the Italian city-states, such as Genoa, Pisa, Venice. Over the course of the 12th century, Constantinople effectively gave up much of her naval and trading capability, allowing the Italians to do it for them. This particular example of outsourcing was to prove pretty disastrous. So, the first lot to have a hack at Constantinople were the Sicilians, who had taken and sacked the empire's second city, Thessalonica, in 1185. The final chapter started in 1201, when a group of knights planned a new crusade. The idea was to go not for Jerusalem, but for Egypt. Although it sounds a bit counterintuitive, this actually makes sense. The security of the Arabic Holy Land depended on the wealth of Egypt. The Crusaders did a deal with Enrico Dandolo, the Doge of Venice, to provide transportation for the following year. Now, Enrico, there's a man and a half. Of all the weird and wonderful Doges of Venice, Enrico was the weirdest and indeed the most wonderful. At the age of 85, Enrico did what many octogenarians aim to do, namely get an interesting hobby to keep his mind active. In Enrico's case... The hobby concerned was to take over the leadership of one of the most powerful seafaring nations of the Western world, Venice. Enrico was old and blind, had a mind like a bacon slicer and the moral compass of a wolf. But he agreed to transport the Crusaders for the greater glory of Christendom, for a suitable fee. Unfortunately, the number of Crusaders who assembled at Venice in the following year was only one-third of the agreed number and this gave the leader of the Crusaders, Boniface of Montferrat, a bit of a problem, because it meant he only had one-third of the men to pay the ferry ticket. Enrico struck a hard bargain. Look, he said, you still have to pay me the same amount you originally offered. But if you take back the Venetian city of Zara for Venice, recently taken from us by the Hungarians, I'll then take you where you want to go and wait for payment until you have the wherewithal. This is therefore how it happened. The crusade set off for Zara, which had duly captured. Pope Innocent III was duly outraged and excommunicated the whole lot of them, and I doubt Enrico even turned in his sleep. Then enter Alexius Angelos, son-in-law of the deposed and blinded ex-Byzantine emperor Isaac Angelos. He had another proposition for the crusaders. Come and put me back on the throne of Constantinople instead of my evil usurping Alexius III and I'll finance the expedition to Egypt for you. Plus, I'll give you a lot of other stuff besides. So, the Crusaders then found themselves located at the bottom of the moral slippery slope, and in June 1203 were camped outside the walls of the bulwark of Christendom. With no fleet to speak of anymore, Constantinople fell surprisingly quickly, especially in the light of the trouble Mehmet was to have in 1453. Old Enrico was in the forefront, leaping from his galley, the banner of St Mark in his hands, planting it in the soil of Constantinople. And Alexius IV Angelos was duly installed. Alexius took a trip to the treasury at Constantinople. It was cold, rude and bare. Suddenly the deal he'd struck seemed less like the good idea it had seemed to be a few months earlier. So when the Latins came along to demand their prize, he told them that regretfully he'd changed his mind and he wasn't going to give them a red cent. 
Now, as far as the Crusaders were concerned, they wanted to go uh, crusading. But Enrico was a man of principle. He wanted his money. And actually, he realised that a greater prize was within reach. Why not take over Constantinople itself? Venice could then have access to all the trade it wanted, and could shut out all the competition. Genoa, Pisa, Sicily could all just sing for it. In January 1204, then, it was decided to attack and take Constantinople. Meanwhile, within Constantinople, they had come to the realisation that in the nicest possible way, Alexius was a bit of a loser. So they got rid of him in the nicest possible way. A local strongman called Alexius Ducas arrived on the scene. Let's call this particular Alexius Merzephalus, because that was his nickname. So called because his eyebrows were hairy and met in the middle. If you have any friends whose eyebrows are hairy and meet in the middle, you might like to call them Merzephalus from now on. Anyway, Merzephalus popped Alexios into chains and strangled him with a bowstring. Sweet. Mosophilus isn't going to trouble the scorers for long, but he did at least repair the towers and put Constantinople back into a state of readiness for the coming siege. Much good that did them. On the 9th of April, the barbarians were at the gate, and indeed in short order were through the gate and well into the living room. There then followed a three-day orgy of brutality and vandalism, Constantinople's second to darkest hour. The Latins descended on the city and stripped it of all its treasures, in the words of an eyewitness. They smashed the holy images and hurled the sacred relics of the martyrs into places I'm ashamed to mention. They destroyed the high altar and shared the pieces out amongst themselves. They brought horses and mules into the church, the better to carry off the holy vessels. A common harlot was enthroned in the patriarch's chair to hurl insults at Jesus Christ and she sang baldy songs and danced immodestly in the holy place. Nor was there any mercy shown to virtuous women, innocent maids, or even virgins consecrated to God. Enough said. The net result was a shattered empire. Have a look at the map on the website, but essentially what happens is that a feeble Latin empire was established with Baldwin of Flanders as its first emperor. The same Baldwin, incidentally, who had not been around in Flanders when John needed him. Around them were the shattered remains of the Greek Empire still ruled by the Greeks. In the south, in Anatolia, there was the Empire of Nicaea. To the east, there was the Empire of Trebizond. And in Greece, there was a Greek despot of Epirus. Byzantium never completely recovered from this blow, even after the fall of the Latin Empire only 57 years later. The wages of sin, I'm told, are death. And indeed, Enrico did die in Constantinople and was buried in the Hagia Sophia. But for the Venetians, the wages of sin were actually rivers of cash. But for the Venetians, the wages of sin were actually rivers of cash and the dominance of Eastern trade. Egypt remained untroubled. So, shall we summarise all of that before we go back next time to John and that small damp island off the coast of Europe and the supposed point of this podcast? France is resurgent under a great leader in Philip Augustus, moving towards cultural and political leadership. The papacy has achieved much greater spiritual authority and temporal independence from the Holy Roman Emperor, and in leaders like Innocent III has a leader of great personal skill and authority, as John is about to find out. Italy is split effectively into three regions. Southern Italy is part of the Kingdom of Sicily, Central Italy is ruled by the papacy, and in the north a series of city-states 
have achieved high levels of independence from the Holy Roman Emperor, with cities like Venice in particular developing powerful trading empires. The Holy Roman Empire remains in many medieval minds the centre of the Christian world, but the reality is that its power and influence is fracturing and slipping away. In the East, Byzantium has been dealt a blow from which it will never recover. Everybody have a great Easter. Gasp. All done. See you next time.